What's going on? Jason Bay here. Thanks for checking out the Blissful Prospecting Podcast. Before we get in, I just want to let you know that if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I appreciate you taking a chance here. And I really believe that Outbound is a game of odds. And in order to get better results, we have to make better decisions about how we communicate with prospects in our cold emails, our cold calls, and our LinkedIn messages. And I'm on a mission to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if that's something that you want to do or you're running a team of people, a team of folks that want to accomplish that, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we're talking to CEO at Connect and Sell, Chris Beal, about how to nail the first seven seconds of your cold call. So I've been wanting to talk to someone at Connect and Sell for a while. And uh, I always, you know, there's this big debate with outbound and sales in general. Is it a quality game or is it a quantity game? And, you know, of course it's both, right? Of course it's both. And the folks at Connect and Sell have always leaned pretty heavily on the volume side of things. If you're unfamiliar with Connect and Sell, they have a solution for companies where they'll do agent-assisted dialing or parallel dialing, it's called, where they'll have a team of people dialing out and connecting phone calls to reps. And it's a way that you can literally get thousands of cold calls in on a weekly basis and just sit there at your computer and they'll hot transfer these connected calls over to you. I call them hot transfers. I've heard of them called warm transfers, whatever it might be. But imagine sitting at your computer And instead of having to manually dial 25, 30 people to get one or two conversations in an hour, you're sitting at your computer and talking to four, five, six, seven people in an hour and setting a couple meetings. And Chris had reached out to get on the show and I was like, hell yeah, dude, let's let's talk. And one of the things that he talks about, it just completely blew me away, was just the data around basically in a year, 60 million dials will go through their system that will generate 3 million conversations. And what he kind of talks about is the different states that you will catch prospects in, meeting, working, or idle. And what he starts talking about is different conversions that you should expect along the cold calling journey. So in other words, how many people should you talk to in order to land a meeting? What should your connect rate be? He's just got millions of data points on this. The thing that really blew me away about what he talked about, though, is how to nail the first seven seconds. And if you're unfamiliar, you probably know of the 27-second cold call opener. I already knew of that, was well aware of it. The, hey, this is Jason. Do you have 27 seconds for me to tell you why I'm calling? It's a version of that, and I've heard that a lot. But he really actually talks about the psychology behind it, and he really digs it. It's a masterclass in tonality, too. So how to use tactical empathy and demonstrate competence in the first seven seconds of the cold call. And I really believe where most people fall flat is in that first seven seconds. They just don't sound like a peer. So he's going to talk about tonality. Why instead of focusing on our fear, we should focus on our prospects fear when they pick up the phone. And he really talks about how to treat the discovery call like a product. So when you're setting a meeting with someone from a cold call, how to get them excited to do the discovery call or that demo call without saying, I want to do a demo for you. So there's just tons of goodies in this that I think you're really going to like from my conversation with Chris. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So I was uh, doing some research on you, just LinkedIn, and 
man, you have a lot of different stuff you've done in your career, but I'm curious, how do you end up getting involved with a company like Connect and Sell? What's the story there? It's so funny. When I first met Sean McLaren, I didn't really want anything to do with Connect and Sell. In fact, a former employee called me up and said, you got to look at Connect and Sell. And I said, I looked at it. I said, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? <laughs> and he says, uh, I think so. <laughs> but you got to meet my, my CEO, Sean McLaren. And I said, Sean McLaren, like the guy who invented the IBM mainframe storage industry back in the 80s or whatever. He said, oh, maybe. <laughs> so next morning, I found myself at 6.30 a.m. up at the Rosewood Hotel in Menlo Park in the library. Of course, dead quiet. Not a soul is there. And this guy, Sean McLaren, comes in. And, you know, he's a very distinguished guy. He's like 6'5", and he's got white hair, and he claims it's brown, but, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, super, super smart. I mean, I found out since this is a guy who has like 22,000 cell phone numbers in his head. So he's just a really, really smart guy. And he describes a company. And I just said, I asked him three questions. Like, is it real? You know, is it commercial? Does it scale? And he answered the questions in a way that made it clear to me I should join. So I just told him I'm working for you now. I said, I'm in. He says, what if I'm not hiring? And I said, well, it's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. So I joined up as the head of products. And I've done a lot of different jobs at Connect and Sell. And eventually in 2014, uh, you know, it goes like no good deed goes unpunished. They, uh, they punished me by making me CEO. And I've been CEO since then. So what was the, for those that are unaware listening to this, do you want to just explain the offering with Connect and Sell? And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like where, how did you guys think if you were a part of those conversations early on about how you position this against all the other kind of things that salespeople have access to, all the technology and the dialers and all that kind of stuff. But how did you kind of think about how it was positioned? Oh, that's still a struggle. So yeah. connect and sell is really simple, right? You push a button, you talk to somebody on your list and it takes a few minutes. So I can look at like my team right now. I won't share my screen, but you know, my team, uh, Erica Williams, who's had the most conversations today, She's used Connect and Sell for five hours, 20 minutes, and 12 seconds. And she's had 57 conversations with decision makers, VPs of sales mostly. And out of those, she's set five meetings. And all she's done, I'm not, I'm not trivializing it, I'm just saying, you know, in terms of what people would think about with regard to prospecting, is she's pushed a button that says go, and she's waited an average of three minutes and 18 seconds, according to what I'm seeing here. And she has a conversation with somebody. And that would have taken her, according to these numbers, 1,161 dials, you know, navigating phone systems and all that kind of stuff. So the offering is push a button, talk to somebody. And the goal is to increase your conversation rate and hopefully your skill. That's why we offer this thing called flight school also to increase your skill to where the number of meetings you can set per hour of prospecting goes up and up and up. And uh, so Erica today has set 0.94 meetings per prospecting hour, which is, uh, you know, pretty frisky, right? I mean, that's, I think most folks who are running any organization what, or either SDRs or, or AEs are doing their own prospecting or SDRs are prospecting for them would think that if you got about one meeting per hour of output from somebody doing prospecting, that would be kind of awesome. 
So that's what it is. Our positioning is nothing more than that's what it is. <laughs> so we actually don't, we don't talk very much about other ways of doing things because our view is really simple. If you can talk to people on your target list, that's the best use of your time. So do it. That's kind of it. And then we have a zero speculation approach to the whole thing. So we don't let people buy it unless they use it in production for one day. We call it an intensive test drive. So it has to be their list, their people. I uh, did one with a big company yesterday. Can't say who it is, but a big company in the uh, sort of the computer networking kind of space. And they put 22 people on and they they had a lot of conversations, 360 something conversations and set 18 meetings. Now, our test drives, we're not that interested in the meetings because sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. Who knows? We're interested in, in breaking through the skepticism because people don't think that folks answer the phone. And I've got evidence to the tune of, you know, the data from 60 million dials a year navigated through phone systems with senior decision makers on the other end, generating about oh, almost 3 million conversations, which tells me that, yeah, people do answer the phone. They just say they don't. Yeah. So, cause I want to understand the mentality behind how you guys think about this, because there's, you see the content, probably there's this whole quality versus quantity debate. It has to be a versus versus, you know, it's gotta be both right. Volume obviously has to be there, but when you get someone on the phone, you know, there's a bit of skill involved too, to getting the meeting. And it almost feels like what you correct me if I'm wrong. You guys kind of look at this almost like a productivity challenge. It's less about how am I treating the data that I'm given and more about how am I making this, the individual rep as productive as possible? Like literally the definition of like work, you know, how are we making them as productive as possible per hour? How can we increase that output? Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Is that how you guys kind of thought about it? You know, in one way, but, but our thinking has evolved. And so we always thought that if we made the rep more productive with more at-bats, they'd just get better. And what we've learned is many of them don't. They just prove bad habits. And so, you know, cold calling is a very athletic business. You have got to be on and executing in sort of millisecond timeframes because it's a flow of emotions that are going on, yours and the other parties. And it's happening fast. You know, I mean, we were talking before the before we got on here about jet fighters and all that. And it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like, like how long does a dogfight last, right? a couple of modern military airplane planes. It's a, it's a few seconds. That's what a cold call is like. The first seven seconds are everything. And your ability to manage those first seven seconds and be really, really good every time is important, especially if you have a lot more first seven seconds. It's like Eric, I was talking about, you know, today, I'll look at the number again, 57 times she had to go from zero to great in tone in that seven seconds, she had to get somebody to trust her so that they would stay on and she could set those five meetings. So it really is, it's kind of funny that people talk about quality versus quantity as though the only thing you can do is spend a lot of time with the data and that'll improve the quality. But it actually doesn't because it improves the quality of information about somebody you're not going to talk to. So you have a one in 20 chance of talking to them. So, you know, 19 out of 20 times, all of your research leads nowhere. It's just research that 
Now you've got to go back and do it again or you remind yourself of it before you call somebody. If you think about it this way, take the research component, centralize it or at least compartmentalize it in time so you make a great list. But what do we mean by a great list? Well, everybody on the list is somebody that according to your current theory, you'd like to talk to. How good's your current theory? You'll find out. Let's go talk to them. You can't learn what's in somebody's mind without having a conversation with them. You can't learn it by going out to an intent system of some kind that says, oh, they intend to buy your kind of solution and really know what's in their mind. You can only know what's in their mind and get them to consider engaging with you in a trusting fashion by having a conversation. So our view is segregate and concentrate the research and make a great list. Preferably have list makers make that because reps suck at it. Why do reps suck at it? Because great reps are talker listeners. They are not data analysts. That's all there is to it. Yes, there are freaks in nature who are both, but your average great rep can talk to somebody, listen carefully to them and start to put together this picture almost like a video of the future that says where you could go together, right? That's the definition of the great rep. Such a person tends not to live in spreadsheets. I'm just saying, it's not not where they hang out, right? So you want somebody who's really good at data to take not only the raw information you have or the guess, I'll call it the guess, your hypothesis about your market and turn it into a list, but then take the feedback from the conversations and, you know, have formal feedback. What was the disposition of the conversation? Was it a busy callback, interested, send information or whatever? Then also even some of the qualitative to quantitative feedback. How often were certain words used? How long did the conversation take? All that kind of stuff. And feed that back into your list. And then I say, we can make the list better in terms of let's set meetings with people who are like the meetings, you know, the people we set meetings with before, because you got to do that. And then let's also take that list and focus it on people we've managed to, that are like the ones we managed to do business before. But if you don't compress the time, by the time you get to the point of doing all this feedback work, you're out of business. You know, that's the problem with sales. Sales is science done under time pressure. I love that. So, oh man, there's so much to unpack there. I want to, I'll circle back to the first seven second thing here in a second, but so basically what I'm hearing from you with the data is you typically will see plus or minus a tenth of a percent of about a 5% pickup rate across the board of the people that you call. What do you see? Cause I come from call centers that my background is setting up B2C outbound call centers actually. And we called it list penetration. You know, we got 10,000 records. How many of those people are we going to actually have a conversation with? What does that look like in terms of, you said 60 million dials to 3 million conversations does the math work out kind of the same if you had you know 10,000 people in a list? How many of those, what percentage would you end up actually having a conversation with? Or does the math kind of work out the same? No, it doesn't. It, it's, you have to talk to, you have to try people multiple times because there's two things going on. There's a cohort thing, people who answer the phone, people who don't. It's pretty bimodal. Yeah, there's you know something in the middle, right? But then among people who answer the phone, now there's a busyness thing. Are they going to pick up or not at that moment? Because it's in that instant. So what are they doing in that instant? You don't know. You're blind to it. So are they in a meeting? And this is where B2C and B2B are similar but different. The main reason people don't answer B2C calls is they don't want to answer a call. They don't know the person right for whatever reason. But they might if it was intriguing enough. 
it's from an area code with their kid goes to college or something. You know, <laughs> they're they're worried, yeah. right? So they might answer that one, and that is one of the effects that you're going to get with Connect and Sell. In business, you have this other thing going on, which is people are in one of three modes. They're in a meeting, in which case they're probably not going to answer unless it's somebody they really know and it's super important, and then they're going to apologize to everybody in the meeting and put them on mute and go do that thing, right? Or they're in some occupied deep state, right? They're thinking deeply or working on something or whatever, in which case they might answer, they might not, depending on their personality. Do they like a break? Are they looking to avoid work or do they do deep work? And then there's sort of like idle time, right? When people might answer, like they're in the car going somewhere, they're getting on an airplane. It's kind of funny that a lot of the answering is when people are going into meetings, they're about to go into a meeting and they're too busy not to answer. There's sort of time pressure psychology that automatically happens. So if you look at that and go, well, what are the odds of getting somebody who does answer to answer? Probably about one in seven, one in six, one in seven, if you have their cell phone number. If you're coming through another way and we let you come through, however, like we navigate phone systems and do all that stuff, it might go out to about one in 10. And that's among the answering cohort. So how do you find the answering cohort? Well, you talk to them. And then that conversation leads to another. And that's with a list of people who answer. Your net penetration is going to end up probably around 30, 35% if you go out to about 16 to 18 dial attempts on the ones who didn't answer. But then at some point, you just say, that's kind of a diminishing returns thing. And you start to cut the curve. And that's something we help people. Yeah, that is very interesting. And I think a big part of this too is when the volume is not high enough, you don't get to play into any sort of law of averages. You know, you're not going to really get any kind of good data that will be any useful, at least, unless you're in the thousands. You know, you get some good data points. The lawlessness of small numbers. <laughs> right. And it's the lawlessness of anecdotes. And that'll kill. That's where people mostly end up as they just remember something that happened and then they go, well, that must be everything. It's like, you know, you got to have big numbers. Like our numbers today, this is just one day, 9,136 dials, 403 conversations for my little team. That's not enough to draw a lot of conclusions, but it's more than most teams will call in a month. Oh yeah. Way more. (laughs) Most AEs. I mean, I actually, with BDR teams that I work with, I worked with one and the expectation was a hundred activities, a hundred calls per week. I'm like, dude, really a hundred calls in an entire week. I mean, geez, but um, how have you seen in the last 10 years during your time at connect and sell, have you seen anything change with cold calling in terms of the data or people picking up the phone any less than they were? What kind of macro changes have you seen in the last 10 years, if any? Yeah, there's some. There's sort of a slow increase in the number of dials it takes to get a connect. Uh, there's also an improvement in the available data. So that counters it to some degree because you can choose to go with better data than people were using. So that's part of it. It's an input to this whole thing is how good is your data? These two things actually counter each other. If you go and get great data from uh, you know, Zoom Info or Apollo or whoever, and you get great as good a set of mobile numbers as you can from them, then you can skim some pretty good cream early on. And actually, this, this is also how we think. You think about go-to-market as always a race against time in two ways. One is you have competitors. So if somebody else gets a prospect to be 
quote unquote, theirs. So they have that trusted advisor relationship before you. You're kind of screwed because getting somebody to untrust somebody they trust will make them not trust you. It's a first over the finish line kind of thing when it comes to trust. And B2B is all about trust. I mean, B2C, a little bit of trust. B2B, 100% trust because you're risking your career when you make a considered purchase in B2B and you don't know enough. So you got to trust somebody, right? So that's part of the, you know, this whole kind of speed question, right? The other part is overhead. So you're burning overhead, you know, overhead's the racehorse, right? It eats while you sleep. And so it's working on Saturday and Sunday to take your company and diminish its uh, assets, right? So assets, liabilities climb at all times and assets shrink at all times. And you're in a race to get to market or even worse, if you're a young company and you're still in what I think Sangram Badre calls a problem market fit. You don't have product market fit yet. You're trying to figure out if the market cares about the problem enough that the product could fit there. You've got to go really fast. And your alternative is to sell off your promising company to venture capitalists you know, faster and more than you would care to. Is You give up control and you give up equity. And if you're that kind of a company, and frankly, I think it's kind of tragic. Everybody can have their own view of it, I suppose. But if you can go fast and iterate quickly on message, the beauty of cold calling is the message stands in for the product. And if the message generates meetings, the product has promise. So instead of getting hung up on demos and blah, 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 get hung up on seeing how many meetings you can set with a message that resonates. And if you only get through 25% of your market on the phone, well, your competitor you know, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They're not getting that many meetings per day as you are. And meanwhile, you're going faster in terms of getting to where you need to go before your, your money runs out. Yeah. Is there any long-term detrimental effect of chewing through that much data so quickly? I can't think of one unless you're persistent in taking a bad message to the wrong, you know, like if it's the wrong market, it's innocent. All you've done is burn something you care about. The dials don't burn the, the list. So, so I say the, the market's a list, right? That's it. Markets are always lists, ultimately. You come out of a world where they're literally lists, right? You never called consumers who weren't on a list. That doesn't make any sense. You don't call like Joe homeowner. You got to call, you know, Joe Jones homeowner. So you make your market into a list. And now here you are with your list. You burn the list by having conversations unskillfully. That's it. Unskillful conversations will burn your list. Skillful conversations will give you information that lets you refine your list, make a better list, or eat this list up with good stuff that makes meetings one or the other. So you need to get your skill up fast, and you need to have tight feedback loops between what's coming out of the activity, which is really segmentation information. That is, who's taking the meetings and who's not, and then what's happening in the meetings. And you've got to take those feedback loops and you have to iterate back into the data. But first you got to get the message right. Until you're converting 5% or above conversation to meeting, your message is not resonating in that market. So you've got to tune the message first. Let's talk about that piece. So you mentioned the first seven seconds of the cold call. What do we need to do to nail the first seven seconds? Well, I learned this from Chris Voss. He was kind enough to teach me this at dinner one night. So I asked him, Chris, how long do we have to get trust in a cold call? And he said, seven seconds, just like that. Yeah. 
I spilled my drink, man. I jumped back. <laughs> he's a very nice man, but he's sort of a scary dude anyway. So yeah, he's very matter of fact. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking down to see where the lasers have been burned. In the <laughs> yeah. I said, really? I joked with him. I said, well, our research says eight seconds. And seriously, our research said eight seconds. And he says, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So what do we need to do in those seven seconds? I asked him and he said, oh, it's simple. All we need to do is show the other party that we see the world through their eyes. We call it tactical empathy. And then we need to demonstrate to them that we're competent to solve a problem they have right now. And I said, okay. So I said, here's what we teach them to say. It's like this, Jason, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, it's perfect. I said, great. I'm hoping for free consulting and you're giving me it's perfect. So <laughs> another drink and loosen you up a little bit. He said, no, no, it's perfect. He said, look, when you say, I know I'm an interruption in that hard, flat voice where you throw yourself under the bus, you've taken care of number one. That's how they see the world. You are a problem. And then when you say, can I have 27 seconds? He mimicked my voice. He said, you switched your voice to a playful, curious voice that tells them to come along with you psychologically. So when you said, when I, can I have 27 seconds? Tell you why I called and your voice went up twice. He made this motion with his hand. He said, you're telling them you can solve their problem. I said, that's because I'm the problem, right? He said, bingo. So the beauty of the cold call, and this is what's so shocking to people who learn this in our flight school. The beauty of the cold call is it starts from a reliable place, which is the prospect is afraid of you. And they're afraid of you because you're an invisible stranger. And you are like the worst thing in, in all evolutionary time, right? You can fear your spiders and you're falling out of trees and your snakes and whatever. But the fact is, the scariest thing for humans is always the people from across the river. And we don't like them and we don't know them, but they do paint their faces vertically and we are civilized and we paint ours horizontally. And they do put a bone in their nose and we're civilized. We put bones in our ears. And, you know, when it's dark, they're invisible. And when they're here, they're strangers who are invisible and they're not here to bring us a Bud Light. We are afraid of invisible strangers. We don't like them. They're going to change the demographics of our village suddenly and violently. We don't like that. So that's what's inside of somebody when you cold call them. It sounds terrible, but it's great. It's like a compressed spring. They're immediately in a state where they're, they're motivated to do something. And what are they motivated to do? Get off this call with their self-image intact. That's it. And that motivation never changes. From the beginning of the call all the way through to the end, you can rest assured, no matter what they say, they want to get off this call with their self-image intact. If they just wanted to get off the call, then hang up. But they don't. So you can use that fact, that emotional fact, as a springboard on a very short seven-second journey to trust. Because now you're showing them you see the world through their eyes. I know I'm an interruption. Hard, flat, bang, under the bus. And then very quickly, playful, curious, can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And what they're likely to do is be relieved and chuckle. The 27 seconds, by the way, is an odd number, not because it's odd and not because it's three cubed either. That's a different thing, but because it's specific. It's a specific number. It says you're an expert and that you're worth listening to when they get curious, right? So that's what we teach people to say. And it's not the words. 
Now you think about it this way, an email, which is the alternative way of prospecting for the most part, contains roughly 5,000 bits in a whole email, bits of information. Count them up. Roughly, let's be easy, instead of eight, let's say 10 bits per character, because it's easier to multiply by 10 than by eight. 500 characters, right? 50 words, 10 characters, or 100 words, whatever it is, about 500 characters in an email. So 500 times 10, you got yourself about 5,000 bits. That's a quarter of a second of a human voice. A whole email has as much information as a quarter of a second voice, which runs about 20,000 bits a second. All that other information doing. It's all emotional. It's not the words. It's all emotional. It's when you talk to somebody, your voice resonates in the middle of their brain where the emotions are. And they will make an involuntary decision to trust you or not in seven seconds. So it's doable. That's why cold calling actually works. It works not because it's a trick, it works because B2B is so trust based that if you wanna compete and win against competitors and time, your two enemies, you've got to be reliable at doing something. And what you do can do reliably in a cold call is generate trust in seven seconds. Yeah, I love that you address the 27 second thing because so many people ask me about cold call openers and I'm like, you guys, it's not the fact that they're saying 27 seconds. And you already addressed that, so I'm not gonna get into it. But where I would like to, double click and go in a little deeper with you is I've never talked to anyone quite like this around the psychology piece of what the other person's thinking and specifically tonality. Can you share a little bit more about that? How do you guys help in flight school? How do you coach around tonality? Well, two things. One is first, we, we actually held a messaging workshop for about an hour and everybody thinks it's going to be, Hey, like you're going to give us our message. And then they're really frustrated with me because when I do them, because it's like the first 42 minutes or 46 minutes or whatever is all about the psychology, about the emotional journey that you're going to take somebody on. And it's very detailed. It's second by second. It's tone by tone. And the point is to emphasize this is what you're going to learn. This is what this particular sport is about. This is not about your, it's like surfing. It's not about how strong you are. It's about, you know, can you use your sense of balance and your feel for what's going on in order to cut the edge of that board in the wave and make something beautiful happen? Because that's what you're going to have to do. And it's going to feel like being on a surfboard in a wave. You don't control when the wave starts. You've got to get up on that thing and you've got you've to use your skill. And the skill is emotional skill, but it's got to be learned you know, moment by moment. So we're asking them, listen carefully to all of this, this framework. And then when we get to your message, you won't be so freaked out. You'll be able to focus on the tone. Then we put them into flight school. Flight school, the way it works is two hours of, well, first we have two hours of what we call de-icing on one day. That's just to get used to the speed. I compare it to you know, I haven't gotten to, to jump into an F-14 like, you know, you're interested in those things. My friend Rick Brennan used to fly those things at Top Gun. And take you know, I would love to do it. Tom Cruise apparently filled three bags when he tried it and uh, said, never show me one of them airplanes again. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the story I heard. So I have had the experience of jumping into a Ferrari 455 and taking it out onto a racetrack with an instructor. And that is very similar to me because the first lap here, I think I'm a pretty good driver. I've been driving since I was 
I lived out in the desert, so 14, right? One can drive aggressively out there if one chooses, because right? there's no one out there. So I thought I kind of knew how to throw a car around a little bit. I was clueless, right? Here I am in this thing that's so fast, it's so powerful, and now I'm on a racetrack, a Formula One kind of track, so it's not doing all this stuff, right? I was like somebody who'd never driven before. And until I had that first lap under me, there was no point in the instructor yelling at me. But by the second lap, beginning of the second lap, he's yelling at me, right? Break hard, break hard, break hard, which is pretty much all he would yell. <laughs> he wanted me to break hard. He wanted me to, to hit the apex and he wanted me to come out and put my foot on the damn floor, right? Pretty simple stuff, but you gotta be learning it at speed. You gotta have that instructor, you know, but we de-ice them first. So we let have them have the first lap, get used to the speed because connecting cells ferociously fast and it freaks people out. High heart rates, big pupils, sweaty palms. I don't care who you are. If this thing don't freak you out, you ain't human. Then we go into four two-hour sessions. And in each session, you get coached on just one part of the conversation. So a funny thing about cold calls, they look just like prize fights or any fight. If you lose at the beginning, it doesn't matter how well-trained you are for the end. And you lose the, at the beginning of most cold calls. You've lost them in the first few seconds. You're flat on your back, on the canvas, blood coming out of your mouth. You've lost. So to not lose, you've got to learn under pressure, under real performance pressure, how to manage your voice, how to get the words out, but how to manage your voice and how to manage your beliefs. Because the core belief is you got to believe in the potential value of that meeting you're offering for that human being you're talking with in the downside case in your head anyway, where you never do business together. You got to believe that. And you find that belief in the first seven seconds. So for two hours, we coach you on seven seconds. Go home, sleep. Sometimes it's days later. Then we do two hours on what we call the 27 seconds, which really is just the value prop. You know, Jason, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough. And then you've got to learn how to say that correctly and get to the next part with the correct belief. Jason, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone, even using the phone at all. And the reason I reached out to you today is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? That's the whole thing. Not easy to learn. Everything in it is awkward. Everything takes you to emotional places you don't want to go. You don't want to throw yourself under the bus. You don't. you don't want to admit you're the problem and that you're going to solve the problem. That's how you get the trust is by showing you're competent to solve the problem as you. You don't want to say, I believe, because it feels like it's too out there. What do you mean, I believe? You don't want to avoid the issue of your product. Notice I didn't say anything about it needing dialing. That was connect and sales breakthrough script right there. If we, you want to blow it, say this. If you're a connect and sell rep, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough dialing technology. That blow, boom, dead, shot. Why? Because you've just offered the person another way of, out of the conversation to say we're set. After all, they weren't waiting for a sales rep to call them up and tell them how to do their damn job. <laughs> they weren't. And as soon as you insult them by doing that, You've also offered them the back door, which is, thanks, Chris. You know what? We're set. And there's no answer to that. What are you going to yeah. say? Oh, you're not? No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. <laughs> I call that the third grade playground. 
you do not want to go to the third grade playground in a sales situation. So that's what we teach in flight skills. So the first day, two hours, first seven seconds, second day, two hours, the value prop. Third day, objections. We call it turbulence. So you get why it's called flight school. Take off, fly, turbulence, because now you're starting to get objections. How to handle the Venus flytrap objection, which is when somebody says, wow, tell me more. What's this all about? And then you start telling them more and they say, hey, we're set. <laughs> They're out. So how do you not tell them more? Do you have the guts to say, Jason, you know, we've learned the hard way that an ambush conversation like this isn't a fair setting to talk about something this important. I'm a morning person. How's your Thursday? That you can learn to say. <laughs> yeah. I love this, by the way. So let's backtrack a little bit. You said belief and conviction. And this is the number one thing I hear missing in a cold call where the person says all of the right things. They use the right words, but it, they just don't sound like they believe in what they're selling. And when you got a 28-year-old you know, account executive, let's say, calling someone in their 40s, 50s, it's been an executive at a company for 15, 20 years, you could just, you know, he or she could hear that right away, that the conviction's not there. I'm not talking to a peer, that kind of thing. How do you get them to believe? Where does the belief come from? How do you coach and teach around getting that conviction to come out so that when you say, I believe that we found a breakthrough, how do you get that to come out? First, you have to bring it up and say, it's necessary. Management has to stand behind it. They've got to believe too. So it's really interesting. Scott Webb over at Hub International gave me a lesson on this one. It was great. He called me up. And by the way, Scott converts 74.9% of his conversations to meetings. And he's the chief sales in the company. So he leads the blitzes. And he leads them by doing. And so he called me and said, Chris, my belief isn't strong enough. My mindset's not there. He's converting 35% of his conversations to meetings with CFOs of $100 million companies. Which is really good. I consider that the golden standard, 30 to 40% of your conversations, that's really good. That's really good. That's world, world class. That's top one yeah. of 1%. The average yeah. out there is about 4%. So this is yeah almost nine times, right? He says, no, it's not good. He says, I've looked inside myself and I realize that I don't believe enough to actually insist that they take the meeting for their own good. I have to see it like pulling somebody away from the path of a speeding bus. That's what I have to see it like. It's my responsibility to cause this person to take this meeting there where they're going to learn so much, where it's going to be potentially so good for them. And then he called me back in an hour and said, they just want five for five. I get it now. And his whole team now, by the way, this team executes at above a, a 20% level. Across the team, this is a bunch of producers who are not full callers, right? So first you have to have, like, leadership has to lead. It's impossible to get the 28-year-old account executive or the 24-year-old SDR to believe because you tell them to believe. you got to believe yourself. Secondly, you have customers. Go get one. Go get two who really learned a lot in that discovery meeting because the discovery meeting is the product. The product is later, right? But the discovery meeting is the product that you're selling. And so what are you going to learn on that product? So I've got to break it down. You're going to learn something economic. You're going to learn something about making somebody's emotional life better because anything that doesn't make people feel better is not going to sell. And you're going to learn something about how you're going to help folks go from A to B, what we call strategy. 
So what are they going to learn in that meeting? So you got to have that laid out. Like, what are the three kinds of things, the specific things that somebody will learn from our expert? You got to know your product. So, you know, we onboard reps for like, oh, somebody is telling me we got our onboarding down to four weeks. It's like, great. We got ours down to one hour. Because <laughs> what we do is we say, first, you're going to practice this, but we're also going to talk about the belief, and you're going to hear it when you believe you'll hear it and we'll coach you on it, right? So you got to break it down though. It's like, what are they going to learn in a connect and sell discovery meeting? They're going to learn that it's possible to have 10 times more conversations than you thought was possible. It's possible. You could use that any way you want. You don't have to do business with us. You're going to learn that the emotions of cold calling are not what you thought. You thought they were about your fear or your rep's fear, but they're actually about the prospect's fear and how you can use that to take somebody on a journey from fear to trust, to curiosity, to commitment, to action. So you'll learn that. And then you're going to learn that it turns out that strategically, if you're able to have more conversations, you're able to run tighter feedback loops from the field, from where you're learning back to the targeting. And you're going to learn that, that your strategy can be closed loop instead of open loop. Those are the three things you will learn. Do business with us or not. You will learn those three things. That's the product. And without knowing the product, how can you sell the product, right? So everybody goes, oh, you got to know the end product. It's like, that's not what you're selling. You're selling the meeting. That's the product. So what's inside that meeting that's of value to somebody, even if they never do business with you? And then the third thing is go get a customer who had a great experience, has a great experience with your product and have them talk directly to your reps about how the experience of working with your company changed their life. Don't let them talk about features and functions and garbage like that. You know, when I get in a discovery call with somebody, my second question is, when everything goes great, everything goes great, perfect customer, perfect fit for what they need to do. Timing is right. Their budget is there. Your customer success people don't blow it. There's no integration issues. Everything's great. How does your product change that customer's life? Which is a lot better question than what's your mission or what do you sell or how do you sell or whatever, right? Because everybody wants to feel like they're part of making things better because they are. That's why we're in business, right? It's not, that's my second question. My first question is, where are you right now on the face of our blue whirling planet? Because I want to make them see that we're together. Yeah. Oh, man, dude, we could talk for another hour just about what you shared in the last five minutes, because I love the discovery is the product. That's business acumen right there. That's the meeting is going to be beneficial for you outside of me talking to you about my product the entire time. That is just I love that. And then the oh, man, the other bomb you dropped was the fear. It's not about your fear. It's about the prospect's fear. That's like a, you know, a complete 180, you know, of, you know, call reluctance. I think that's a perfect way to position how to think about call reluctance. If you're afraid to pick up the phone, stop thinking about why you're so afraid. Think about the fact that have some empathy for the person that you're talking to. Sit in the seat, you know, put yourself in their shoes. You're scaring them. And that's why we don't like to do it because we don't want to be the one who scares somebody. It's like, do you ever think you get up in the morning and you'll, gosh, I sure hope the first person I meet today is scared to death of me. 
<laughs> that's like bad because we reason about people within the context of the village. And the last thing we want is our co-villagers being afraid of us. That's worse than anything, right? You want to be shunned? Be scary. We don't like being scary, so we don't pick up the phone and call. But once we know that it's necessary, it's the equivalent professionally for a surgeon. Like if you're a surgeon, there's something you need to get over. You got to cut into the patient in order to help them. There's going to be blood. We don't like the sight of blood unless we're weird. The sight of blood is not a good thing, right? I mean, I don't care where you see it. You're not going to like it. But as a surgeon, it's your professional requirement to get over that and to somehow put that in a context where you know because you're doing good for this person and because you know it doesn't kill them, you know, very often, you're going to take that scalpel and you're actually going to cut through their skin and their, you know, into their insides and do useful things for them. That's what we're doing professionally. The fear that we have of scaring somebody, that's the equivalent of the sight of blood for a surgeon and we got to get over it. And if we can't, I don't care. You know, our anatomy can be great. We may have a steady hand. We may be able to tie a good little suture. You know, we may have all the books memorized, but if we can't handle the sight of blood, sorry, can't be a surgeon. Can't operate with your eyes closed, right? And so that's why cold calling is so tricky because, you know, it'd be like being a running back in the NFL. Can you imagine what it takes to decide to go try to hit that hole? It's a crazy proposition, right? But if you don't get over it, it's worse. It's just engineering going to help you. So it's very, it's very similarly athletic to some other professions where there's that moment. And in that moment, you have to have practiced enough that you're alive to that moment and you're comfortable being uncomfortable just for that little bit. And then it's easy. Once they chuckle, it's nothing to the phone call. There's nothing to, the, after seven seconds, that's just a matter of not being lazy. You can't say this. I, you know, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough. That, um, you know, completely eliminates the waste and uh, the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone, you know, or, uh, <laughs> right, like this, you got you to use your voice. Your voice is your instrument. This, by the way, cold calling works. Cold calling works because it, it sits between text-based stuff, which can't move the emotions because it can't. There's not enough information. And video or personal meetings, right? So personal meetings are fabulous. Video is fabulous, but we can't get them, right? You can't interrupt somebody with a video call. You can barely do it at a conference, but you better know that person. Like I interrupted Lars Nilsson yesterday when he was talking to somebody at a conference in San Francisco, because I know Lars and I had to go catch a plane. So that was my excuse. I could go over and say, hey, Lars, love the panel, blah, 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 right? We had a nice little talk. I could interrupt him there. But guess what? I can interrupt Lars on the phone anytime if he answers. That's okay. It's the interrupt medium that works at a distance and allows you to have an immediate contact with somebody's midbrain where their emotions are. There isn't anything else. Love it. We are out of time, Chris. I could talk to you for a couple more hours about this, but I want to, uh, where can people go to check out more about Connect and Sell? you got a pretty cool podcast. Two that I started listening to where you guys riff on a bunch of cool business 
you know, kind of stuff, but where can people go to get more of you and connect and sell? Sure. I like the podcast best of all. I'll admit it. It's called Market Dominance Guys, all one word. It's out there everywhere, I think. I don't pay much attention to whether people listen to it or not, but I don't know. Somebody sent me the cliff notes of, of 104 episodes that he'd listened to. I'll cliff note it out. So somebody must be listening. Uh, so Market Dominance Guys, I'm out on LinkedIn a lot. I don't know. I've been doing the LinkedIn thing for a while. Chris Beal, E-E-A-L-L, CEO of Connect and Sell, easy to find. And then, of course, connectandsell.com. If you want to take a test drive, it's the most mind-blowing thing in the world. I mean, go listen to Tony Safoyan's podcast called Cloud and Clear, episode 54, 21 minutes in. He tells what happened in their test drive, Google Cloud's number one reseller. And it involves some big, big numbers, and it's really fun to listen to. That was a fun one. Again, my biggest takeaway from this was really this fear, managing your prospects fear and thinking about the other person and how to disarm them and get them open to talking to you in that first seven seconds versus thinking about your fear of cold calling. I thought that was super interesting. So he took the conversation in a very different way than I thought that he would, which actually doesn't surprise me, you know, kind of looking back, but I really hope there were some good takeaways for you in this podcast. I have one favor before you take off. It would mean a lot to me if you shared this episode with one other person that you think would get a lot of value from it. So if there's someone you know that could use some help with their cold calls, or maybe you're a sales leader with a sales team, sharing it with your reps or vice versa, it would mean a lot to me if we could get this podcast in the hands of more people that need help with their cold calls. So appreciate you tuning in today. We'll see you next episode.